Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Warning, today's main fiction, some people might find scenes disturbing and language that is disturbing. Please be advised of the adult nature of this story. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 46. Yes, hello. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Show 46. A show to be remembered, almost definitely. In our show today, we have a little bit of poetry by David Kaposkar Merkel. Flash fiction comes to you from none other than one of our good listeners, Mr. Church Tucker. And unfortunately, or good for him, Terry, our good friend Terry Edge, is at a writing course hosted by Dean Wesley Smith over there in Oregon. And there is no writing article today, but what I do have, I have Julie Davis with a little review of someone you may know. And there's also a new section to Oral Delights this week. Yes, and it's going to be by my good self as well. Basically, the idea is it's simply new titles, anything new titles that are coming out in the kind of publishing industry from authors in um, and I've asked around, you know, in kind of science fiction, fantasy and horror. I thought I'd cover them all. If one of these books kind of pips my interest, I'll mention it in the kind of new releases section, you know, so look out for that later on. I have four this week to entice you into spending your money on these particular authors. Join me later on for new titles. Today's main fiction comes from Larry Santuro. The story does come with a little bit of a warning. And what I thought would be very nice, though, is actually to get Larry to give a bit of introduction and a bit of kind of background to the story so you really know where Larry's coming from and, you know, why he had to write this story. Hopefully this show will cause a little bit of feedback revolution. But we will start off with a little bit of Pori. Letter from a Red-Shifted Star by David C. Kaposka Merkel You flew so high that you flew into time, like a fly caught in slow glass. You may emerge some day when the sun is cold and I am dead or transformed and no longer in love with you, something we will have in common, finally. And the velvet underground in Dallas, football fans all, chagrined at a lopsided game, sang about sex, drugs, major surgery, and rock and roll, their dangerous music, which led many children to ruin, hardly seems different from Perry Como to kids today. I don't even like your dog, which I will be walking twice a day until the stupid thing dies. I couldn't kill it, though I tried, 
damn right I sold the antique DVDs, china, and all the house plants. The 3D never needs to be watered. I will keep the old CDs, though. All those that work. You didn't even like Frank Zappa, but I dig his quaint attempts to shock. The things they thought outrageous a century ago. Listen closely. Here's my bullet. I never needed you. Publication History Abyss and Apex, December 12, 2004 don't forget, copyright is David Pascal Merkels. Don't go out there copy copying. Please do pop over to David's website. Links on the main site. And Julie Davis. Julie, thank you so much. Please look out for a little bit more work by Julie coming up later on in the show. Next, we get on to our flash fiction. So I asked Church for a little bio on yourself, and this is what he sent over. Uh, mm, I don't really have a bio. I'm a middle-aged guy living in Baltimore. This will be my first published story. There really isn't a whole lot else. Well, except for fighting the crime by night bit. But I like to keep that low key. So that's it. Church Tucker, thank you very much, sir. And the flash fiction is narrated by Dale Manley. Dale has kindly narrated for the Starship Sofa a few times. So please, he's more than welcome to receive your emails, praising good or bad. Fairy Husbandry by Church H. Tucker Narrated by Dale Manley See, the problem with your farm-raised fairies, he told me, is that they only grant very bland wishes. I shrugged. That's kind of the point, though, in it? Otherwise, I gestured toward the pens, you couldn't keep them in a farm. He nodded, but said nothing. I finished my breakfast burrito in silence. After a while, he got up and called in Twitchy. The little beagle came bounding in and started sniffing at the wrapper of my breakfast. None of that for you, lass, he told her. Time to turn in. Lord, I love these summer shifts. I smiled at that. Remember that when you're bitching about December? He smiled too, but said nothing as he returned his shotgun to the arms locker, which was a little more than a closet with a cheap lock. I stole a glance, as I always did, at the two small heads mounted inside. How long had he worked here, patrolling all night in every kind of weather? Twenty years? More? And in all that time he had managed to bring down only two wild fairies which, to be fair, is quite a lot for any one man, but still that's got to be pretty boring. Of course, a wild fairy in the pens pretty much spells the end of a fairy farm, so it's necessary work. I just had to wonder how much the owners paid him. So, anything interesting last night? I asked, as I always did. Eh, quiet for a change, he joked, as he always did. Are right, John. I'll see you tomorrow morning. Night, lad, he replied, and he and Twitchy headed out the door. I took the two coffee cups and brought them into the tiny staff kitchen. The little sink was accumulating a lot of coffee cups. Someone must be bringing new ones in rather than washing their old ones. I headed over to the pens. It was hold on by now, 
and they were quite dormant. Their little faces were puffier than the wild ones in the arms closet, and their ears were fashionably longer. I scooped up a couple of limp little bodies and dressed them in the ridiculous diaphanous gowns. I always wondered if they were male or females. Sexing a fairy is notoriously difficult, but it didn't matter. The little girls always wanted girl fairies, so gowns it was. I arranged them carefully into interesting poses and then firmly pressed the book shut. It seemed rather a waste to me. But that's what every little girl wanted that year, and you don't argue with your best customers. The next morning, as I sat eating my breakfast, John asked me, Do you know how to catch a wild fairy? I stared at him. Do you? was all I could think to say. He smiled conspiratorially. Ugh, I do now. All I could do was continue to stare. Catching a live wild fairy was the stuff dreams were made of. Also, if the stories were to be believed, nightmares. Obviously it could be done. Our pens were proof of that. But those that managed it weren't big on spreading the information around. He was just smiling at my state, so I asked the obvious. How? He jutted his chin toward the pens and said, I asked them. That confused me for a moment. Wait a minute. You asked a farm fairy how to catch a wild one? That never works. Which was true as far as I knew. I had tried it myself a few times during the winter when the fairies were still active during part of my shift. I'm sure every farmhand has at some point. I didn't think it was possible, but his grin grew broader. Oh, what did you ask them? How do I catch a wild fairy? Well, yeah, I admitted. You're not thinking bland enough, he said, and produced a slim booklet from inside his jacket. I stared at it. Fairy husbandry was printed in neat text across the top. I cannot believe that work, I said, while mentally kicking myself for not having thought of it. Step one is naturally catching a wild fairy. He leaned in and lowered his voice, even though we were the only ones in the building. The trick is, you've got to seriously injure them, and then keep them disoriented. That way they're too concerned about themselves to worry about you. He got up and returned his shotgun to the arms closet. I noticed he was now sporting a trash bag looped through his belt. It wasn't long after that that we started gearing up for the Christmas season. The market for children's book was on the decline, but a whole new fad for fairy Kamasutras was starting to take off, and I was often working double shifts pressing fairies into unlikely poses. Uh, that meant that I was literally seeing John coming and going, but he had grown much more secretive about his discovery and refused to talk about it any more. I tried his trick myself, but I couldn't get it to work. Either I wasn't phrasing it correctly, or knowing what step one was took all the blandness out of it. Probably the latter, since I was able to coax a small library of dull tomes about horses and pigs and basilisks out of the little boogers. About a week before Christmas, which was the start of our slow season, all the Christmas orders having shipped by then, I pulled up to the farm and was dumbfounded to see a giant rectangular hole in the front of the building. No debris or anything, just a hole about where the front door had been. 
I entered cautiously, calling out for John. It wasn't until I got to the pens that I started to panic. They were gone. Dozens of pens and scores of fairies were simply not there any longer. I turned to leave, and my racing heart just about stopped. There were two heads mounted on the arms closet door. Well, I could only see twitchies, but I didn't have to remove the trash bag to know what the other one was. I ran back the way I had come, but found that my way was now blocked. In the place of the giant hole was an equally large open book. And there you go. Thank you, Church Tucker. And a fine narration, Dale Manley. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Church Tucker. No going out there, as usual, pinchy pinchy. Thank you, Church. Much appreciated, sir. Now we come on to Julie Davis. Julie over at Forgotten Classics, the podcast over there. Please pop over and see Julie's site and check out everything there. But Julie is talking about someone you might know. Reviewing The Standards of Creation by J.J. Campanella J.J. Campanella is perhaps best known in audio circles as a frequent narrator on Starship Sofa, which is where I first encountered him. His website, Uvula Audio, features Campanella's narration of a wide range of audiobooks, ranging from Frank L. Baum to Doc Savage to P.G. Woodhouse. It does not take long to discover that narration is indeed a skill at which Campanella is expert. He handles foreign accents and different voices with an ease that makes it easy for the listener to visualize each speaker. What is easy to miss, perhaps, is that Campanella's own written work, The Standards of Creation, is included among the archived files. This is a shame, as Campanella has written a fast-paced, multi-layered book that combines the best of action thrillers and science fiction. Just a few of the elements woven into this story include Martian colonies of Chinese and Americans, each hiding their secrets while trying to discover those of the other, Yarrow Hayes, a Nobel Prize-winning biologist born and raised on Mars, who ironically is dying of an incurable disease, Alex Aradine, a young scientific genius whose cynical outlook threatens to cripple his promise. Bell, an undercover NATO agent whose cybernetic enhancements give her unparalleled skills but carry with them a price that lead her to take surprising steps. Then there's Gabe and his mysterious boss. Is Gabe really an alien using telepathy to speak to Alex in his dreams? What is the mysterious alien ship voyaging through the solar system? And just what are the standards of creation? How will they change the lives of each person in the story? All this is set against a background containing some of the most classic science fiction elements, terraforming on Mars, life in the Martian colony, biological scientific development in the future, such as the different versions of the cloned NATO officers, and an alien device that looks like a huge black marble silently making its way toward the sun while scientists struggle to communicate. All of this is laced with characters in impossible situations for which there is seemingly no solution. Above all, this is a book of secrets. Every person and every situation has at least one secret beyond those that we think have been revealed. 
This leads to an in-depth look at free will and to personal responsibility that both surprised and delighted me. I am not even including some of the subplots involving drug trafficking or an order of priests with a surprising, yet practical, hidden agenda. It might sound as if there is too much crammed into the story to make a good book. However, Campanella handles the many elements with ease to provide us with a truly original novel that is not only thought-provoking, but which also harkens back to the times when science fiction included real science. We hope that his future endeavors branch out again from narration to include more novels such as this one. This review was originally written for SFF Audio by me, Julie Davis. There you go, Julie. Thank you so much. It's really quite nice to get a kind of another perspective on our good friend Jim. Do you know what I mean? He's kind of tirelessly plugging away for the sofa, but yeah, he, he does other things as well. So, Julie and Jim, both ears, thank you so much. This sofa, you know what I mean? It's what kind of it's everyone that helps out that makes it what it is. So, the both ears, thank you so much. <laughs> So welcome to New Titles, yes, and basically, like I said before in the introduction, if a book comes through the post and it pips my interest, I'll give it a mention on the show and, you know, there'll be links on the site so you can kind of go over there and, like you say, if that book takes your fancy, please, by all means, support the author. So there is four that have kind of landed on my desk that have kind of seemed to me that kind of, I would like to kind of, I would pursue a little bit further and maybe recommend them for yourselves first off we have probably one of the kind of masters of science fiction out there mr ben bova editor the man who stepped into the shoes of john w campbell and took over analog when john w campbell passed over ben bova's new mars third one in the mars trilogy mars life has landed there and actually this one came from uh, right from america to be quite honest so Tor Publishing, Tor USA Publishing. So Ben Bova just described the cover, and actually the, the cover's really quite nice. It's like this, I'm actually talking now <laughs> at night time with a little kind of spotlight over my desk. So lighting effect is not that perfect. It's it's a typical colour, what you the cover, what you'd expect from like that Mars, that kind of red, goldy, blurry that looks like the cover actually looks like kind of sandcastle kind of swept and there's a bit like a kind of futuristic Mars lunar lander little buggy there and a few astronauts on the cover Ben Bova Mars Life and there's a tagline from Daily News Los Angeles saying Bova gets better and better combining plausible science with increasingly entertaining fiction this is the hardback edition and I'm just trying to see the price $24 which is I'm guessing half that. Is that right for UK? I mean, it's a nice size one, 430 words. And I'll just give you the inside, the, the blurb on the jacket on the inside. Jamie Waterman's discovery of cliff dwellings on Mars opened up a whole new scientific frontier, prompting a series of excavations that revealed that an intelligent race had lived on the red planet 65 million years ago, only to be driven into extinction by the crash of a giant meteor. One of the people who continued Jamie's work is Carter Carleton, an anthropologist who was driven from his university post by unproven charges of rape. Whether or not he wanted to go to Mars, he became the planet's star scientist when he uncovered the remains of Martian village. 
But as the ultra-conservative new morality movement gains control in the US and cuts off funding for the Mars program, the future of the exploration of the Red Planet faces an extinction as grave as the one that fell the Martians themselves. Science and politics clash on two worlds as Jamie desperately tries to save the Mars program and uncover as much information as possible about the fate of the vanished Martians before no one is left on the planet to study them. Mars Life is basically Ben Bova's Grand Tour novel series. First off, kicked off with Mars, which came out in 1992, then returned to Mars in 1999. Ben Bova is the kind of perfect, you know, with kind of scientific background. He's perfect to really capture, you know, finding this kind of maybe life on Mars scenario. I tried to get an interview with Ben Bova on, you know, just talk about this book. And what's actually funny is, you know, Although he's kind of technically minded and everything like that, when it came to doing a little interview over a computer and Skype, just I, I didn't have a clue. So unfortunately, can't get a, an interview with Ben Vova, but do hunt out this story, Mars Life, Ben Vova. The next one that has landed on the Starship sofa, there it goes, landed on the Starship sofa news round desk is the collected stories of Vernor Vinge. Now this book, Sovereign Press, and it is it's one of those good like giant trade paperbacks. You know, originally copyright two thousand and one, and it was first published in the USA by Orb Edition, part of and published by Tom Doherty Associates. It was first first published, like I say, in Great Britain by Sovereign Press. One of the stories in there is Fast Times at Fairmont High, and that's the kind of the pre-runner to Vernor Vinge's Hugo-winning Rainbow's Ends. Here's what the Observer says about Vernor Vinge. The shadow of the future hangs over us, and Vinge is here to intrigue, warn, and worry us about it. Gregory Benford says, Anticipates our future like nobody else, and even better, makes you believe it. SFX Magazine says, resonating in a way like classics of Aldous, Vance and Le Guin. For the first time, a collected edition of Vernor Vinge's seminal short stories spanning four decades of innovation, imagination and achievement. A complete introduction to the work of the most celebrated science fiction writer of our time. Each story imagines Vinge's visionary ideas to bring us vivid, life-changing ideas about human life and how we are being changed by technology. Containing the first publication of his Hugo award-winning novella of the near future, Fast Times at Fairmont High, where mankind appears to be nearly obsolete. And it actually says as well, each story is preceded by a witty and insightful introduction by Vinge, remembering the genesis of the stories from his first story as a schoolboy and their personal significance for him, as well as his memories of writing in the golden age of science fiction. And it's funny, you know, kind of... <laughs> Rainbow's End just didn't kind of spark an interest for me. And I remember reading Fast Times at Fairmont High a while ago and wishing it was what, I guess, Rainbow's End should have been. But even then, it's still for me, you know, this went off the rails. But not went off the rails. It was just one of those stories where I was wanting things maybe in Rainbow's End cleared up at the end. I can always remember getting to Rainbow's End at the end and then just thinking, just getting a little bit mixed up there. And I was wanting Fast Times at Fairmont High to maybe do the same thing. And I think, again, it still missed them points. But there's other stories in here that I can, like I say, that are spanning Vernor Vinge's, his whole writing career. And they are chunky stories. 
464 pages and there is 17 stories. So if you haven't kind of checked out Vernor Vinge, and I kind of seriously recommend you do because some of his other work is just fantastic. You know, A Fire Upon the Deep, just an amazing story. So there you go, Sovereign Press, Hugo Award winning Vernor Vinge. The next one comes to me and I have never heard of this lady. I have never, and she's had a few books out, Kelly Armstrong, and it's from our good friends over at Orbit Books, Living with the Dead. And I'll just give you kind of, like you say, the, the, the blurb on the, on the cover. Robin Peltier has never done anything out of the ordinary and she never makes snap decisions. But when her new boss is murdered and she's named as prime suspect, she finds herself out of her depth. As the bodies pile up, only her best friend, Hope Adams, and Hope's somewhat spooky boyfriend, Carl, are on her side. What Robin doesn't realise is that Hope has a few secrets of her own, namely that she's a half-demon and that her spooky boyfriend is actually a werewolf. Robin has accidentally stumbled into a bloody supernatural turf war and the only way Hope can keep her friend alive is by letting her enter a world she's safe and knowing nothing about. A world where homicide cops talk to ghosts, defence lawyers or sorcerers and nothing is quite what it seems. You know what got me there? Because you're, you're, you're reading it and you know, and it's a little bit kind of you're thinking, that's not kind of probably going to pick my interest but it was them, them last lines there when a world where homicide cops talk to ghosts defense lawyers are sorcerers and nothing is quite what it seems that's what kind of got me and i thought you know i would i would probably have a little bash at that and read that this living with the dead actually comes out in november 2008 price 14.99 i'll give you a little blurb on kelly armstrong kelly armstrong lives in rural ontario canada with her husband three children and far too many pets. She is the author of Supernatural Women of the Other World series, Exit Strategy, a crime novel involving a female assassin, and The Summering, her first new young adult trilogy. And like I say, she's been going for a while. She's got a story called Bitten, a story called Stolen, Dime Store Magic, Broken, Haunted, Industrial Magic, No Humans Involved, and Personal Demon. And actually, the cover's quite... It reminds us very much of the kind of haunted house, you know, the Eddie Murphy story, where you've got this kind of crystal skull and there's a kind of crystal ball and there's a skull inside that's lighting up. 370 pages, so there you go. Kelly Armstrong, some secrets are best left buried. Living with the dead. That's from Orbit. Another one from Orbit is a gentleman called Ian Irvine. Now, this is a paperback, The Curse of the Chosen. And this is actually volume two of the Song of the Tears trilogy. Now, Ian Irvine, I've seen his books on shelves loads of times. And I was talking to Skeet for an interview, which is coming up on Saturday. And, you know, we're kind of talking about the artwork. And, you know, it's them, it's that initial kind of grab on artwork that makes you actually pick up a book. Now, Ian Irvine's books, he has got a good artist. You know, that's a good mix there when you've got a good artist kind of hitting your covers. Now, this... this this curse of the chosen it's got it's some sort of like kind of metallic crab beetly looking thing that's kind of clinging onto the cover i'll give you a little blurb from the back of the cover there is strength and desperation but it is enough to save the world plagued by false friends and the weight of the world's expectations nish must flee his father the corrupt god emperor but until he ends his father's rule he will know no peace Nish's reluctant allies include Melise, who believes he betrayed her family. The former securator, Exeverish Flyde, now stripped of power. 
The group's fragile partnership must survive a hunt for a hidden tower in the Arctic wilderness. They must convince the dread numerator, despiser of humanity, to give them aid. But what of the different future shown in the pit of possibilities? They have nothing to lose but their hope, a frail weapon in war upon a god. SFX magazine says, hang on with both hands because this story waits for no one. Epic, non-stop action adventure from Starburst. But what I really like about, and this is quite, you know, when I mentioned once, when I pick up a book, I like to read everything before I kind of get into the actual story and get into the book. Now, Orbit, and it looks like it's done them, they've done them on all the paperbacks, which is a great kind of idea. Right at the back, there's like a section called Extras Now, and it's kind of got a, the pages have got like a dark board around it. And it's, you know, the usual kind of about the author, and I'll give that a little read as well. But in this one, there's an interview with Ian Irvine as well. And it's quite a chunky interview, do you know what I mean? It goes on, and then there's, it, it's got like advertising for other kind of books as well. Now, I would just be kind of skipping all the way through that and reading them, to be quite honest, till, till I finished everything on the book before I even started the story. I'll give you a little blurb on Ian Irvine. Ian Irvine was born in Bathurst, Australia in 1950 and educated at Chevalier College and University of Sydney, where he took a PhD in marine science. After working as an environmental project manager, Ian set up his own consulting firm in 1986, carrying out studies for clients in Australia and overseas. He has worked in many countries in the Asia-Pacific region. An expert in marine pollution, Ian has developed some of Australia's national guidelines for the protection of the oceanic environment. The international success of Ian Irvine's debut fantasy series, The View from the Mirror, immediately established him as one of the most popular new authors in the fantasy genre. He is now a full-time writer and lives in the mountains of northern New South Wales, Australia, with his family. Ian has his website over at www.ian-irvine.com and can be contacted. He's actually even got his email address here, ianirvine at ozemail.com.au. So there you want to email the guy he's even got in his book. So, like I say, I've seen Ian Irvine's books for a long time, and like they, them covers are kind of striking, and they would be possibly ones I would kind of actually hit as well. So, Orbit books priced at eight ninety nine. That's the second part, and hopefully, Orbit might kind of send us some more of the Ian Irvine just to kind of I can mention them as well. So, those are the new releases that have pipped my interest this week. Do join me next week. If any of you have landed through the post, I will certainly scan them and bring the good ones to you. So now we come on to the main fiction of the night, Larry Santuro. And basically what I'm going to do now, I'm just going to hand over the whole kind of kitten caboodle show to Larry and a little introduction and you will get the main story as well. So please be advised, this is a hard-hitting story. So Larry, in your capable hands, sir. Hi, this is Larry Santoro. I wrote Little Girl Down the Way and I just thought I'd give you a little bit of an audio introduction to it. I did that for another story I did here. This is different. Some scream. I write. I write for a living, and I write because I have to. For a living, I write for the city of Chicago. This pays reasonably well, and it offers decent benefits. The work puts me in contact with people, people with problems, with angers, with sorrow. 
It also puts me close to decision-makers. I'm not one myself. In fact, in my job as a writer of speeches, a drafter of policy papers and memoranda, I'm, I'm actually presumed not to exist. So city writing is not something that relieves me of the need to write fiction. About that fiction. First, I work from character outward. Plot, as I've always said, a plot is a place you get buried in. Two, I don't care if it sells. I want people to read it, of course, but I'm not going to force them, nor am I going to write what they want just because someone might buy it. That's what I do at City Hall for money. I also recognize I'm a hard sell. I don't work in neat boxes. Given that my livelihood may never come from fiction, I care too much about the work I do for love to bend over backward to make it fit into neat frames. Three. Sometimes I write out of a passion. Anger, fear, sorrow, hatred, all of them. These pieces are frequently harsh. Many times they're cruel. I call them my vile tales. The term comes from a comment I once made to a friend about a story of mine called Catching, when she referred to it as erotic. Erotic, I said. It's not erotic, it's just vile. It was. There are quite a few of these tales by now, and they're often written in great haste, flowing onto the screen as fast as I can tap the things out and as fast as I can think them. They typically begin with a person in crisis, and sometimes it comes from people who survive in the wake of that crisis. A little girl down the way comes from another place. Here's where the sorrow and the anger came from in this story. I live on the north side of Chicago. It's an area called Wrigleyville. Wrigley Field, where the Chicago Cubs play, is three blocks away. During the rest of the year, Wrigleyville is just a place where the overcompensated come to hoot and puke. For the last decade, Wrigleyville has undergone a transformation that's been relatively unprecedented in my memory. People with far too much money and far too little imagination have moved in. They came here because this was a place they had loved when they were in college, a place to get drunk, to get laid, to piss in the alleys. Now they came back to live and have said, well, we can't have all this. But they're not the source of my passion about little girl. The malignancy that came with yuppie infiltration was this. The old three-story frame houses were dissolving, disappearing literally overnight, and newly, cheaply built, vastly pricey, tall, narrow, faux-brick condos were rising in their place. It's a form of urban cancer that destroys our collective memory while giving us a glimpse of mid-21st century slums-to-be. But this isn't where my passion that formed this tale comes from, either. So, about ten years ago, I was driving up the alley... Uh, past the site of a demolition. Where an old garage had been yesterday was now a muddy stew. The site was surrounded by rebar jammed into the dirt and into the cracks in the alley cement. But the rebar was threaded with yellow crime scene tape, stuff we've all seen in movies. Uh, Wandering around were the usual crime scene people, police, paramedics, plain clothes, bureaucrats, photographers, rubberneckers. I found later that the demolishers had uncovered the bones of a small body near the end of the walkway from the old house to the alley. The corpse was that of what was presumed to have been about a two- to three-year-old girl. That was pretty much it, for them. An old, sad tale. 
About three years later, the story oozed into the papers. Chicago Homicide had not given up on the case, had worked to find information about that former occupant of the house, and generally had done their work. They speak for the dead. A yeoman task, when you consider that the victim the murder police had to speak for in this case was about 50 years into her particular portion of eternity. Finally, no big splash, just a page five news item, a woman in Nebraska confessed to having killed her child in Chicago in this place, now gone, in the late 1950s. The details were scant, but moving by the bareness of their bones. The woman had been identified and been found in a Nebraska hospital dying of congestive heart failure. She confessed to having given birth to the little girl in the late 1940s, and virtually from the first had kept her a secret from the world. Reasons? No reasons. How could there be? Or if there were a reason or reasons it probably derived from, from some unrecognizable form of love. When the mother became pregnant again, she kept the little girl locked in the basement. Again, love of some unimaginable species. While the remains found just down the way from my apartment seemed to have been those of a very young child, the girl had actually survived to about seven years and was murdered by the mother, maybe in a rage, maybe not. Having confessed, the woman died. The son that had been that second child, now in his 40s, I believe, was surprised to find out that he had had a sister and that they had shared that house until he was three or four years old when he and his mother had just packed up and moved. The view from my home office window on our second-floor back porch is down that alley. The burial site is less than 100 feet from my back gate. I wasn't living in Chicago when the crime took place. I was just a kid then a reasonably well-adjusted, all-too-coddled kid growing up happy and not in Reading, Pennsylvania. I don't know what I was doing when the 20-pound, 7-year-old became a corpse. But I shared a back alley with the little girl for several years in my adulthood, and that view from my window down the way and the changing shape of the neighborhood always made me feel somehow connected. We were neighbors, I guess. Well, I grew up in a small town. The story you're going to hear now was written six or seven years ago. I put it aside for a long time. I've read it publicly a few times in Chicago at a place called Twilight Tales at a world horror convention some years back. I tried to sell it only once. It didn't sell, I understand. It's got problems, I know. It's too long. It rambles. But it's one of those things I won't fuss with. The little girl is complete. Her story is told. The Chicago police have spoken for her. Now I let her speak for herself. I guess Little Girl Down the Way is a ghost story that posits the not-very-original notion that heaven and hell can be the same place, depending on who you are. And it's probably about love, in some form or another. Finally, an editor asked me for it, and it was published in early 2008 in an anthology of tales by Midwestern writers of the dark called Hell in the Heartland. As I say, it's not a story for enjoyment. It's brutal, it's dark, and if such things bother you, I urge you not to listen. But it's a story that I hope touches you, as her story still touches me. But maybe, uh, maybe it'll get you up and moving around the room sometime. 
that at least. All the best from Larry Santoro here in Chicago. Little Girl Down the Way Aaron was dead. Dead and her little body buried in the narrow alley where the rain spout spilled dirty water over crumbling concrete. The burial hadn't been a good job. Part of Aaron, you see, stayed in the basement, the same basement she'd lived in the last few years of her life. Her mommy had always loved her. That's why Aaron was here, because Mommy loved her. It must have been her bad part, Aaron knew, because day after day, all days alike, Aaron slipped back into this small place in the world. Day after day, all alike, she flopped face-first into a growling rock grinder of lumpy pain. Each day, she fell, rolling into a sea of boiling doo-doo got flushed, snuffed, and smothered, drowned in thick pee, stinky diarrhea pumping up her nose. Every day, she got tossed, heaved onto the broken Coke bottle rocks of sharp light that caught her, hooked and hung her, held her dangling, slipping by her gently tearing flesh, rip, 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 over the red-hot blazing hole of eternity. That was for eye-openers, and she was already dead. Every dawn she opened a new life and tried to cry. She couldn't. The dead couldn't. All days the same, her eyes didn't have the wet for it, chest hurt too much to heave into crying. Even dead, she was hungry. Hunger made her stomach swell. Every now and then she caught something, something dead, she felt, scrambling across her face, her arms, scrambling up her legs in the dark. Caught them, sucked them down, slurp, and they were dead things too, of course. Good the dead could feed the dead, hmm. Unless she puked, Mommy wouldn't know. Right now, she had mice chunks and a couple hundred squirts of oozy bug down in her belly. There was also most of a sock down there. She'd found the thing a long stretch just outside her dog cage. It must have been from a long, long time ago. Something dropped in a corner, then one day kicked and left near enough for her to reach it. She'd taken it. It was so small, so tiny. Oh, maybe it had been her brother's. Oh, 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 the baby's. She held it for a while, loving it, touching her face with it. Finally, she took it, a few threads at a time, soaked in her own dripping nose-blood, and let them trickle down her throat until it was all gone. That was long ago. There were other things, a few dirty things down inside her, but not a lot, not so much mommy'd care. What she fed on, she slurped, Jaw wouldn't let her chew. When she'd been alive, Jaw wouldn't let her cry, either. When she tried to whimper, Jaw made her feel like she was swallowing sharp pieces of herself. Jaw, she counted with her tongue, one, two, three, four, four places Jaw was broken. Tongue could touch and gently shift the broken ends of bone beneath the skin, could hear it great, 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 and make the shivering hot chill chatter all through her head. 
when she did it, when she moved her bones like that, her shattered teeth bit, bit, bit the swelling lips, shredded cheeks, and gnawed on tongue. Jaw punished her, jaw that lived in her head and hurt so much, jaw that minded her for Mommy. Mommy had made jaw from the parts of her mouth that used to sit in her head and chew and talk and hold her teeth. Wham! 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 And there was Jaw. That'll show me, she'd say to herself as Jaw snapped, nyang, 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 down hard and pointy on all the soft places in her mouth. That'll show, Mommy, she'd say as each bite slammed a hammerful of agony against the back of her eyeballs. See, Mommy, she'd say very, very quietly and very, very fast. That'll show me, that'll show me, that'll show me, she whispered it aloud. Maybe Mommy'd hear and like her more. She'd think it to herself, and maybe Mommy wouldn't hear and wouldn't hate her more. Jaw watched and minded for Mommy. Even when she died, Jaw watched Aaron for Mommy. None of it, none of the pain, none of the fear, none of the missing Mommy helped her cry, though because she was dead, and the dead don't cry. Except for not being able to cry, being dead wasn't so bad. She'd hung on so to being alive. Mommy was right. She was a stupid bitch. And when it finally swallowed her, death was just the same as life. Same basement, same mommy, same pains. What had she been so scared of? She was still safe down there. She just hadn't known. When she'd been alive, she couldn't eat. Not the last few weeks. Once, when the cellar window had been left open in a dark wind, just to air the stink out of the goddamn place for Jesus' sake, and the rains had splashed down so hard, the mud had spattered and flowed in thick, poopy dribs down the wall, she'd caught some of it and sucked it down, and the mud was so cool on her lips so gritty. She could swallow it so smooth, and it felt full and heavy in her tummy. And Mommy didn't like that, though. She found out, and she didn't like that. Today, Aaron puked a little snot, and oh, that hurt. The hundred little dwarves she imagined were inside her, inside her everywhere, started scraping, ruff, 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 like that, and got to kicking, kicking her with hard, sharp feet, wham, 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 wham like that. They grabbed parts of her inside, her heart, her tummy, lungs, bones, and throat. They pulled and bent and hung. They stretched and bit and tore on things and made her hurt like she couldn't believe. They jabbed her with knives and fire and ran electricity through her. She'd always hated the numb, chattery way of electricity, the way it made her go all loose and poopy when Mommy'd run electricity through her, the way it made her go slam, go wham, back into the floor or against the wall, her head going boom, boom, boom. The bad dwarves that lived in her had it all. Fire, knives, and electric pain, just like Mommy, only inside of her. And when she yelled, it was a little silent scream only. She could hear it, and that's what counted. Her broken bits poked her here, there, and everywhere, tore out of her cheek, her side, her arm. Bloody stuff ran out of her poopy hole, but she screeched it to herself. She knew how much Mommy hated, just hated that, when the bones showed sticking out. But she couldn't, really, really couldn't shove 
the blood-red pointy things back inside again, not again, not and keep the screaming to herself. So there she sat, forcing herself still, forcing her mouth to stop moving. Aaron made it stop working against the jagged, bony things sticking out of her face the last couple of weeks, months, years. She sat still. She remembered. Mommy didn't like a noise from her in the morning. And she forced the silence of the grave over everything, willing herself to be dead again today, as she had every day for weeks, months, years. Even dead, she needed to breathe. Short pants did it. Deep breath hurt too much, made funny cracking pains inside. Little breaths, a lot of them worked almost as good and didn't hurt near as much. She took her first little sniffs of that day. And with that accomplished, morning was underway. Every now and then she knew a little light. A haze would drift through her like white air, and it hurt in a different way than the memory of life and the reality of this place, this, this heaven, was it? In the silent place she kept around her, she still stank. In the thank-the-Jesus dark, she still stank. While she waited to be all the way dead again, later, later, at night, maybe it was, when she was really dead. Like being asleep when she'd been alive, but when she was awake, she stank. She felt the stinky dress still hanging on her. Oh, it was still there. She still wore the dress she'd worn for weeks, months, years, the dress Mommy'd given her, the same old new dress from the Sears that she wore forever, that she was buried in. It was all dirty now, all covered in poop and pee and the bad stuff like the snot she'd just puked through her bloody mouth. She remembered, remembered the time when Mommy had come to see her and had seen, what the fuck you done to that? Mommy had seen the Jesus Christ, I paid good goddamn money for that, and look what you done to it. That dress. Now and then, a living person would come, come to the basement, would turn on the light upstairs, and Aaron would squint against the glass shards. The hanging bulb sprayed through her like melted metal from a garden hose. That hurt. The light did, but different from the day by day. Whap, bam, boom, bong. Mommy'd bring her later, later in remembering. With the light, the person would move across the basement. It would do those things the living did, and when the person left, sometimes he'd leave the light bulb on, and it would boil her away, day and night, until somebody remembered to turn it off. Sometimes the living person would look scared, would hug himself and sniff like he smelled her stinkiness all the way from the grave down by the rain spout. When this happened, the live one would move quickly, get done what had to be done, finish it, then trot up the steps, slam the door, leave a silence and a chill behind as the lamp swung back and forth, back and forth, back and forth in the dark. It was hard to see the living, but Aaron did like when they came. They were no more than a vapor, hard to see, impossible to touch. She could barely tell if these living ones were boys or girls, big people or kids. She had no idea what the living did, why they did it. Even when she'd been alive, she didn't know. Now, <laughs> every now and then, one of them walked right through her and dragged 
little pieces of her back upstairs, maybe stuck to their shoe or soaked into the hem of a skirt or caught like a burr on a pants leg. That little piece of Aaron would move with the living up in the day and the light. She'd feel the outside day just a little like a splendid single note of a really pretty song, a note that faded, whitened, died, and then crawled back to her dirty, dark, and stinky basement to her while she slept. When she awoke another day, that little piece of her was sticking out of her, just a tiny part of that day's pain. Well, that's how she thought of it, anyway. Every now and then, something so alive would scream past the high, narrow window that looked outside. Kids, small legs and shrill voices, kids, like her little baby brother had been. As with all the living, she could hardly see these children, but they, they made her basement vibrate. And when they did, they made her remember. She remembered back to before she'd come here, remembered to when her little brother had first come home, the baby so sweet, not like her, no. She'd seen little baby sleeping dearly, and all the world was quiet around him. He slept so sweet. She went on tippy toes to him, to baby brother. She leaned over and kissed his cheek. He smelled like milk. His cheek felt so warm and like, like something soft she wanted to taste, like something she'd remembered from long ago, and she wanted now to taste him. But all she did, all she ever did, was kiss his head and kiss his nose and kiss his cheek. And then Mommy grabbed her by her arm, swung her around and around and smacked her on the wall, picked her up and told her good thing she'd come before she dropped, baby. Even though she promised, promised Mommy never to come near Baby again, that was it. Mommy had had it with her. She was planning to send her to school next year. Was, but not now. She was going to let her outside, but not now. She was going to let her have friends, but no, not, not, not now. And she whomped her again on the wall, and her arm bone, all sharp and white, came through the skin, made a mess, a goddamn mess. Then she went to live in the basement. And it was a long long time till she saw Baby again. She almost didn't know him. He was almost as big as she was, and he flickered by the window. His little legs flew by, a blur, but somehow she felt him pass. She shoved as close to the light as the dog cage let her. She squeezed her face against the cold metal. She could see one piece of sky and the wall of the house next door. The day was bright because a puddle of light soaked the floor by her and cut the corner of her cage. The heat of the beam licked her face. Then the legs thudded past again, and she almost felt the wind of their going. Like thunder, like a pounding pain, they ran. And after a moment of silence, and all of a sudden, there was a face at the window. It flashed into one corner of the frame and clipped off her measure of sky. Her brother's little face blocked most of the light and his shadow fell across her. She felt the cool of his shadow and could almost smell the memory of his cheek, but he was so big now. She stared at the giant baby, him and his eyes. Oh, his eyes were so black in his big round head. His eyes got so wide, and he shaded them with both his sweet little hands. She stunk. He yelled and yelled, and in a moment he was whipped up and out of the frame. 
Then there was Mommy, and Aaron skittered into the dark corner of the cage, and no, 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 she knew she'd hurt. She knew she wouldn't know why the fucking Jesus Christ, why she's so goddamn bad. Why was she so... She could feel it all now. This was when she was still alive, back when she was the rat in the basement. Mommy told her that was what she was, to her, to baby, the big Bad rat in the basement is what Baby'd called her. Even after Mommy'd punished her for letting Baby see her, she'd remember back to when Baby had first come home and she had touched him with her lips. She remembered back to the time when she had first, and for the only time, felt the cool life of his shadow cross her eyes. Ever after that, once a week, maybe... Just once a week she'd touch her own hand to her lip and close her eyes for a moment, trying to imagine it was baby's hand she kissed. A long, long time later, the door to the cellar opened, and it wasn't Mommy. She'd been sitting. That's what she did most days. Then the cellar door opened, and she scooted over by the cage door so Mommy didn't have to get down and crawl to catch hold of her. For Jesus' sake! The cellar door opened, and nothing happened. A foot sounded on the stair, but the light didn't come on. In a little while, the foot stepped on the squeaky tread. It didn't squeak like when Mommy stepped on it. No, it squeaked different. It was gray outside, and the world didn't make much light around her. But in the shadow, she saw a small person. She had never seen a small person, and she covered herself with her piece of blanket. "'Come out,' the voice of the small person said. "'I see you. Come out.' She peeked. The small person was near the cage. He was bigger than she was, but she knew he was baby, baby alone. She slipped her head out of the blanket and looked at him. A beam of yellow light smacked her dead on the eyeballs. It felt like a toothache exploding in her whole face. She screamed, and her voice scared her. It sounded like nothing she'd ever heard. It was just her, but it was a ghost, a monster, a rat in the basement, and she was screaming out of fear of herself. Then he was screaming, and the light fell from his hands and rolled on the floor. He ran, he clambered up the steps one at a time, and the wooden door above slammed. She screamed for a few minutes. Through Baby banging on the door above and his screaming and crying, she screamed into the silence that followed. She screamed for a little, then she was quiet again because she knew Mommy'd come. Mommy came later that night, and that was the last day she lived. Before Mommy'd gotten to her, Aaron began whispering to her, telling her she was really bad and she would never make another sound again. She wouldn't really, really, she wouldn't. She didn't sit by the door of the cage this time. She drew as far away from it as she could. She knew it was bad, but she was afraid. Mommy was quiet coming. She wasn't saying, Jesus' sake and fucking Christ and goddamn little rat. She walked down and picked up the flashlight that had gone dead on the floor in the couple hours since Baby had been down to see where the rat lived. She clicked the dead flashlight and put it behind her on the bench. She came to the cage and unlocked the gate. She got down on her knees and hands and reached inside 
Aaron pressed against the farthest corner, saying, No, Mommy, no, Mommy, no, Mommy, no, Mommy. But Mommy squeezed further and further in, caught hold by her leg, and drew Aaron forth. Aaron whimpered. She whispered, No, 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 no. She would never, ever, ever, ever say anything again. Mommy picked her up. She looked at her. Mommy was so big, so much bigger every day, and now she was the biggest thing in all the world, and Mommy put her hands around Aaron's middle and pressed. Aaron took a last breath and tasted Mommy's perfume and said, No, no, no. Then Mommy pressed more and more, and Aaron felt herself break inside, felt herself crack in on herself, felt sharp things stab her and stab her. Then she couldn't breathe, not even a little, and in a short time, held close to Mommy in Mommy's hands, she died. That wasn't too bad, Aaron remembered. There had been worse. When she'd spilled on the new dress from the Sears, that had been worse. That had been a day, a whap, 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 picked up by the feet and spun day. A wee at her face went wham, bong against the metal pole that held up the house from down in the basement day. That day, Mommy dropped her. The little fucker Mommy called her, crawl out on me, will you? She said, then she shoved a newspaper down her throat until she nearly choked. And you'll wear that thing until you wear it out, Mommy said, letting her go, letting her pull the paper out of her own mouth. Mommy sat on her for a little while and hit her with a piece of coal from the bin. She hoped that showed her, Mommy said. She'd have to learn, Mommy said, and hit her. Learn to take care of things I give you and hit her. Cost good money, these things, and hit her. She'd wear that dress and hit her. Wear that fucking dress until Christ Jesus took it off her. Oh, the dress was a wreck after that, and Mommy left jaw to watch out what she did down there. Then Mommy was gone. The door slammed. And she didn't eat ever after. She didn't make any more fuss after that. Now that, that was a day. Except baby would come down and she screamed and mommy came and Aaron died. That was another day. Mommy'd taken her body and put it outside with the trash, she said. Nobody knew. Nobody had known she ever was, much less knew now that she wasn't. Aaron stayed in the basement. After a while, she got used to being dead. Sometime later, people came, living people whom she could hardly see. They took all the things out of the basement. They took the dog cage, and Aaron had no place to be. In a little bit, Mommy came down and stood in the dark. She looked around. Aaron wanted to cry, but the dead didn't do that. Mommy looked so beautiful. She was dressed for going. Aaron knew it. Mommy looked around the empty basement, and finally, as though she'd found Aaron after looking long and hard, looked right at her baby. "'You better stay right here, young lady,' Mommy said. "'You stay here, or I'll be back for you. You hear?' And Mommy was gone. "'How long ago?' Now every day, all days alike, Aaron came into the world and sat in the pain and waited. The basement filled, then it emptied. More people came, more things went. One day, the basement was gone. 
Big machines rumbled through. The house fell. The machines rolled right through her. She felt the light pound down. Dirt filled her, and she rose to the surface. All her pains remained. Pieces of her hung to the iron, to the men who walked right through her in daylight. She watched as her body was unearthed. She watched and waited as people came and looked. She watched, sitting as close as she could to where the little dog cage had been, as people lifted her from the ground and put her in a bag. Bye-bye, she said as her body went away. Bye-bye. Night. She waited. Day. The living came with more machines and built... They dug out her basement again, and she found the old spot where she'd lived and waited all the years for Mommy. Days went along, all days alike. The new basement was bright. The ceiling was white and smooth. Bright tube lights lit the place. The living came and went. They all passed through her like light through a window. And then, one night, Mommy came. Aaron didn't recognize Mommy when she came back. First, she was old, really old. She was stick-thin now, and her skin hung in spotty folds. Her nose was like a hook, thin skin over bone. Her beautiful green eyes were milk, milk-cloudy marbles bulging from her pointy face. Oh, oh, and her hair. Her hair was stringy gray. Mommy'd never been like this. Mommy was always nice and pretty. Mommy'd always loved her hair, her thick red hair and would never, ever let it go like that. Mommy was acting funny, too. She was scared. Mommy was never scared. Her eyes were big. Mommy's eyes were always steady and cool. When she got mad, her green eyes went dark and got squinty, but Aaron had never, ever seen them wide like this. Nobody was with them here in the basement, but Mommy was struggling, fighting against something, and she was losing the fight. Mommy never lost a fight. That was funny, and Aaron almost laughed. Somebody forcing Mommy? Despite her fear, Aaron giggled just a little. Mommy screamed, not words, but a jagged something pouring out of her, hurting her really bad. The giggle dried up in Aaron. She hid in the dark corner where the dog cage had been. The new basement was different now, but she knew where it had been all these years. It felt so good to be in this place again with Mommy. After the scream, Mommy didn't say a word, not one word. And that was not like her either. Aaron heard little noises crawling around down inside her mommy. Little crying snuffles and gulps burped out of her. Mommy came forward, dragged, shoved, pushed, one shaking foot at a time, not on her own. Aaron wanted to go to her to help her, but she couldn't. She just couldn't. Oh, mommy. Tears formed in the eyes of the little dead girl. Tears she'd not been able to shed since her death. As Mommy wobbled toward her, the thin moonlight from the new window cut right through her. It didn't make her any brighter. It cut right through her, and she staggered on. But when she got to the place where the old light bulb had hung overhead for so many years, a hard streak of yellow light poured across Mommy's face. It made Mommy look so hard and solid. Oh! Mommy is dead. Aaron knew. Aaron looked, and oh my, dissolving into being above Mommy, there 
was the bulb. There was the electric wire. There was the old ceiling, the boards and beams and pipes. It all faded into being above Mommy and spread out across them both, spread across to the corners, then down, down the old walls. The old walls flowed down from where the ceiling ended, ran down like spilled honey, oozing, covering... And Aaron remembered, remembered it all. Oh, Mommy was mad when she had spilled honey at breakfast. Mommy had showed her, face pressed to the pancake griddle, showed her she never spilled that goddamn honey again. No, sir. The old basement reached the floor and crept across the new concrete. Under Mommy's feet, the change washed over to where Aaron cuddled with the corner's darkness. It rippled under her feet, and when she looked again, there it was, all the same. Home. Everything as it always had been and was always meant to be, like loving arms, the cage spread up and around Aaron, embraced her in its cool metal bars. Aaron peeked between the fingers she held over her eyes. Beyond the cage, there was Mommy, and she was, oh, God, so real and solid, just like always. Before her, Mommy was growing younger and younger. The red seeped through her gray hairs that hung like old weeds from Mommy's head, and in a few moments it was as Aaron had remembered it. The thin body filled became round and firm. Her face molded itself like clay. Into the old shapes, her nose became less like a sunken beak and stretched into the nose Aaron had always loved. The wrinkles around her eyes, above her lips, the loose skin tightened across the bones. She was getting younger and growing pretty all over again. There were crunches now coming from Mommy, like twigs breaking, like little bones snapping. Aaron knew those sounds. And also, there were slurpy squishes as beauty blew her up like a beautiful, big, full Mommy balloon. Mommy screamed all the while. Then, then it was done. All done, all done, and Mommy stopped screaming forever. The dead didn't scream. Had Aaron been a bad little fucker again? She wasn't sure. Mommy was hurting, and when Mommy hurt, it was Aaron's fault, that dirty little cunt. Mommy stood under the old yellow bulb. Aaron skittered toward the cage door. Aaron remembered what Mommy'd done the last time she'd come looking and her bad little bastard had tried to keep away. Aaron skittered and waited by the door, waited for Mommy. I was good, Mommy, Aaron tried to say. Her mouth was all broken, though, so she could only whisper, I was good. I was good. I waited. Mommy tried to scream but couldn't. Above her gurgles came the sound of tearing cloth. Swish, swish, rip, rip, rip. Mommy's beautiful blouse, her skirt, everything shredded and flew to pieces around her, and she stood naked under the bulb. Mommy's pretty little titties were now all big and sagging full. Her belly was swelling, just like before baby had come. Oh, Mommy's going to bring home another baby. Aaron just knew it. She hoped... This time she'd be allowed to hold baby and kiss him and give baby his bottle. Now that she was dead and now that mommy knew what a good girl she could be. But the invisible people dragged one of mommy's feet forward, then the other, then the first. They walked her like a rag doll, a beautiful, beautiful, big rag doll toward the cage in the corner. Mommy pressed back as if leaning against the people who weren't there, the ones who were dancing her out of the light and toward the cage. Her titties flopped and her hairy, dirty parts went open and shut, open and shut, open and shut as her legs moved into the shadows. Then, wham! 
Mommy slammed her knees in front of Aaron. The Invisibles shoved her face down on top of the cage. Mommy looked big-eyed down on Aaron from overhead. Mommy made that strangled little gulping, burping sound again as her bones and skin tried to flow around and through the bars. Her titties pressed against the cage door right at Aaron's face, and they were so pretty, so warm and soft, so rich-looking. Aaron wanted Mommy to stop hurting, wanted the Invisibles to stop making Mommy hurt. She reached out and touched Mommy's breast. Mommy moaned, and the breast strained against the wire bars. The brown titty tip grew firm, swelled. It reached toward Aaron. Mommy tried to scream. No! Aaron yelled in her dusty whisper. Don't hurt, Mommy! Aaron leaned forward and pressed her lips against the straining titty, and oh, my! It felt so good to touch Mommy with her burning mouth. The nipple slipped so easy in between her shredded lips. Aaron's jagged teeth massaged her mommy's flesh, and oh, her mommy flowed, flowed so warm and sweet and thick into her. The mommy milk surrounded her thickened tongue, the broken palate, the shreds of cheeks. Aaron closed her eyes. It felt so good to suckle there again. She remembered that. That's what she did, the little girl who was dead. She remembered. She remembered this very nipple so many years ago. She remembered Mommy's hands supporting her heavy little head, cradling her body against her Mommy warmth and Mommy smell. Now Aaron's twisted little claws reached out for the warm, fragrant breast. They closed softly around it. Oh, and it seemed so right for them to be there, the broken little fingers. Aaron wasn't aware, but now she leaned back. Mommy and her breast came with her. The little girl drew Mommy through the bars. The cold steel tore through the ghostly flesh, sending electric fires through every dead organ of Mommy's body. She tried to scream, but being dead, she couldn't. Finally, the steel bars flowed through her, and Mommy was in the cage with her little girl. To Aaron, the titty had a will of its own, knowing how to feed and comfort her. Her mouth bubbled with good warm milk, soothing, easing every part that ever hurt. Soon Mommy's arms embraced her once again. She felt herself grow smaller and smaller, and that felt so good. Aaron's eyes were shut now. Through her lids, the light bulb was all red and sparkly black with flashing light. Soon those lights went away and all was darkness. She felt mother heaving under her, but that was all right. She felt her mother might be screaming, but no, both were dead now and wasn't that nice. Both of the mother, daughter, dead together. All the oozy dead things in her belly, mouse chunks and the thick jellies she'd sucked from the bugs that had crawled over her in the dark, all the nose snot she'd sucked, all the dirt, the mud, the pieces of herself, the bone bits and teeth parts, the little baby sock she'd taken one thread at a time, all that now flowed from her. And when it started to come, it burned a little, but then the hurting stopped. It flowed and flowed and flowed from her, from her every part. And for a moment, Aaron worried that the stuff had gotten on Mommy. Then she stopped worrying. If it had, Mommy would have let her sure as shit know about it. And when it stopped, Aaron was clean inside. Just Mommy's sweet, sweet milk still streamed into her from that pretty, pretty titty. 
Mommy went stiff and then started bucking like a wild thing. Aaron's eyes stayed shut, and she soothed her with her little hands and mouth. Mommy's dead. Mommy's dead. Aaron said quietly to the invisibles, making Mommy do these dumb and twitchy things. She can't cry. Don't make her cry. Aaron was still hungry. Aaron got smaller. She felt herself snuggle so close and warm to Mommy. Mommy's flesh felt so nice and soft and warm. Erin pressed her mouth fully against the big, big nipple. Then she flowed inside. She flowed inside her Mommy where it was all dark and soft and warm and smelled so like food and goodness. Erin lay her head on some softness in the dark. It was so easy. It didn't hurt to breathe anymore because she didn't have to breathe. Mommy did it for her. Erin sighed so sweet and felt her mother try to scream again. No, no, Mommy. It's okay. We're good. We're good. Even then, Erin was hungry. A good hungry because food was there. She pressed her mouth to the fragrant Mommy flesh by her cheek and she kissed it, kissed it and licked it. And with the kiss, she felt her belly fill. It felt so much better. Later, she'd eat and eat and eat some more, eat until forever was over. Mommy tried to scream. No, no, Mommy, we're together now, and this is heaven. Mommy tried to scream. Aaron had always loved her, Mommy. That's why Aaron was here for her now, because she loved her, Mommy. Mommy tried to scream. Aaron slept. Soon she'd be awake, and the rest of forever could begin. And there you go. Don't forget, copyright is Larry Santuro. Please pop over to the forums and... Do comment on this story. Was it a wise choice to run the story? Did you feel it was a little bit too upsetting? Both me and Larry would love to hear your views on the story. You can find Larry's work in two books. That actual story came in Hell in the Heartland. And he's also got a new one out at this moment called Just North of Nowhere. So please pop over to Larry's site. Links on the Starship Sofa site. Drop an email, have a chat with him in the forums. He's an active member in the forums there. Let us know what you feel about that story. So that is Starship Sova Oral Delights number 46, Put to Bed. I hope you enjoyed it, you know. I hope it's kind of woke you up a little bit. Please, like I say, drop his email, starshipsova at gmail.com. Pop over the forum, say hello there. Do join me on Saturday for an engine room show. I have a gentleman on there called Skeet who is a science fiction artist. So until then, my good friends, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. 
airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.